Welcome to the Deeper Dive Podcast, brought to you by the OC Church of Christ. The Deeper Dive Podcast is about going deeper into God's Word, learning new insight, and taking a fresh look at the verses that impact our daily lives. Today is the second part of our series, Revelation Revealed. Here is Gordon Ferguson. Welcome to podcast number two on the book of Revelation and on prophecy in general and how to interpret it. Uh, I'm Gordon Ferguson. I've done a great deal of study on prophecy and on the book of Revelation, and I am happy to share it with you. I know for many it is a confusing uh, study, and Revelation is a confusing book, but I think we can simplify it and understand it because God certainly intended us to understand it. When God talks about mystery in the Bible, he's not talking about something hidden. He's talking about something that was hidden that he is now making known. And so to give a brief review, we did mention that the end times was a big interest to a lot of people. And I think today in the times in which we are living with so much Uh, disturbance and upheaval going on all over the world in many, many forms, including a pandemic of COVID-19, certainly we are thinking a lot about the question, is this the end times? And of course, that's a, a good question and a natural connection. We talked a good deal last time about apocalyptic language. The word for uh, revelation itself is uh, from the word apocalyptic, as or apocalypse, actually, uh, as we would uh, use it in English. But at any rate, we talked about it being a type of symbolic language that the Jewish people uh, totally understood. Uh, we went back and looked at some passages in Isaiah that you would look at and think, wow, that's the end of the world. All the stars of the sky are dissolved. The heavens are rolled up like a scroll. Uh, The starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. And so we looked at a number of uh, passages in the Old Testament to help uh, kind of set the stage for what we're doing. We did look at Daniel because Daniel gives symbols, but then he explains exactly uh, what those stand for. He interprets them for us. And so we looked at Daniel 2. Uh, during the time of Babylon's reign and King Nebuchadnezzar at the head of that. And we talked about a vision that he had of a great statue with different kinds of metal uh, making up the statue. And very clearly, uh, that statue was identified as four kingdoms. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon were the head of gold. That was the first one. And then after them would come the Medo-Persian Empire, the worldwide empire that would take over. And then after that, Greece would take over under Philip of Macedon and his son, then Alexander the Great. And we talked about that one. Then the fourth kingdom was the Roman kingdom. And it was during that time that God would establish his kingdom, uh, his new kingdom, his new covenant kingdom. Then we looked at Daniel 7, showing that uh, the same four kingdoms are talked about, uh, this time using Uh, the beast analogy or symbolism. 
And so we uh, talked about the lion and the bear and the leopard, what those stood for, and then a, another beast that was the Roman Empire. And so we looked at that one. Then in Daniel 8, we saw that it narrowed it down, picks up with the Medo-Persian Empire, but then it gets into the uh, goat. And that was the Greek Empire. And it talked about that and how it was going to be divided up after Alexander the Great's death. Uh, among his four generals, and uh, they would have different parts of the old Greek empire, and one in particular uh, had a lot of control in the part of the world in which the uh, Jewish people lived, and they would have kings, and especially one who would desecrate the temple and temple worship and do some very terrible things and that would be called an abomination uh, that desolates and so when we get uh, to the new testament it does talk about the abomination of desolation and we're about to get to that in a little more detail right now i did recommend the commentary by uh, john oakes on daniel it is still available. It is the book on my shelf that I go to when I want to look up something in Daniel. So I do recommend that to help you understand Daniel. But Daniel is a book in the Old Testament that uses symbolic language, but thankfully he gives us the interpretation of much of it and helps us get a feel for what the symbolism means. It doesn't refer to the end of the world. It may refer to the end of a nation, certainly. And that's what the book of Revelation actually does. It is going to refer to the end of the Roman Empire that was uh, severely uh, persecuting the Jewish people. And that picked up in the end of the first century when the church was relatively new. I did want to go to the New Testament because the only place outside Revelation in the New Testament that has any significant symbolic language is Matthew 24 and the parallels to it in Mark and Luke. And so we went through Matthew 24 in some detail, and most people, when they get down to the part of Matthew 24 that talks about uh, the lightning coming from the east, is visible even in the West. It will be that way in the coming of the Son of Man. And he talks about the distress of those days. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. Uh, then appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, etc. And so when people look at that part of Matthew 24, they assume that that is all about the end time the end of the world itself. And of course, in the beginning of the chapter, Jesus had said that the temple, that the apostles were so impressed with, the temple was going to be torn down. And he said, every last stone. And so the apostles want to know, wow, this is incredible. What are you talking about? When will this happen is their question. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age or the King James and other older versions say the end of the world? It's actually the word for Ionos, not cosmos for the world as we think of it, but uh, the age. 
And so people look at that and they think, wow, that's the second coming in the end of the world. And that would be natural if you hadn't studied uh, prophecy and symbolic language. But when you began to think about it, they didn't think Jesus was going to leave. They had a hard time grasping the resurrection and the death that preceded it. They didn't understand what he was talking about. So at this point in time, they did not have the concept of the second coming that we do at all. And so I don't think they're asking about a coming in the sense we think of. They are talking about a coming in judgment because that was a common way to describe God bringing judgment. He would come and bring judgment, his coming. And then the end of the age, obviously if you tear down the city and the temple, uh, then that's the end of the Jewish age. And in fact, in fact, it was. That was what it was intended to be. And God talks about that in Hebrews chapter 8 and describes the uh, end of things. It says the old covenant had already been taken away, but it was going to have a more decisive end in an obvious way. And I think that was the destruction of Jerusalem. But at any rate, Jesus goes into great uh, length here in Matthew 24. But the thing you want to definitely see after all that he says, all the symbolic language, he ends up that chapter or the part we're looking at in verse 34 by saying, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And so we talked about that one. Now, what we're going to do today is move on to the passages in Mark 13 and Luke uh, as well, 21. And so in Mark 13, let me pick up there. As, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, Jesus said? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, the uh, observation here by the apostles came in response to what Jesus said about the woman who gave her last two coins and to the uh, place where you gave them at the temple. And so Jesus praised her and said she actually has outgiven everyone else. The rich are giving out of their wealth and they've got plenty left over, but she's given everything she's had. She gave a real sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice financially. It's all she had. And so Jesus was basically saying that her giving represented a heart for God much more than the people that were giving much more money because they were giving out of a great deal. They were not making much of a sacrifice, whereas she was. And that's why they were reminding Jesus, wait a minute. This is such a beautiful, magnificent temple, and it was built with the money given by the rich people. And so they were offended because Jesus basically sort of uh, put them down. He dissed them a bit, the rich guys. And so Jesus does say that not one stone will be left on another. Then it goes on in verse 3 of Mark 13. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, 
when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? And so now Mark, who's writing to more of a, a Roman type of audience, a Gentile audience, he doesn't use the symbolic type language nearly as much that Matthew used because he was writing to a Jewish audience who understood it. And so Mark doesn't say anything about uh, Christ's coming or the end of the age. He simply asks, when will these things happen? And what's the sign when they're about to happen? So nothing is mentioned about the end of the age because Mark and Luke were not addressing a Jewish audience. Mark does use some of the same apocalyptic language but he concludes with the assurance that these things would happen within a generation, which would be 40 years. And all of this was uh, given in about AD 30. And so 40 years later was AD 70 when the Roman army uh, totally destroyed Jerusalem and did destroy the temple. And so that gives you the insight into what Jesus was really talking about. Now, let's kick over to Luke 21. What I like about Luke is that he picks up with the uh, idea in the early part of the chapter about the little widow giving her money. But let's pick up in verse five. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. The rich guys built the temple, in other words. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Same two questions as in Mark. And so what, when will the temple be destroyed and how will we know it's approaching that time? Then down in verse 20, he talks about the abomination of desolation, referring back to the terminology of Daniel. But of course, in Daniel, it was talking about something that the, the Syrian uh, leader did, at least the one housed in Syria, the one of the generals of Alexander that was controlling that part of the world. But he was talking about the uh, Syrian king that desecrated the temple, but he's applying the terminology because this is the next time it's going to be desecrated, and this time in much more uh, terrible terms, going to be destroyed this time, not just desecrated by sacrificing a pig and setting up idols in the temple, as went on uh, back in the intertestamental period, but this time, it's when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. That's what verse 20 said. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. And so he explains it in common uh, terms that Gentiles would understand. And since uh, Luke is a Gentile, the only Gentile writer of the New Testament, he explained it in very clear terms. And then he talks about them fleeing the city. 
you know, back in Matthew 24, he says, pray that your flight will not be on a Sabbath or in the winter, and it's going to be tough for uh, women, and especially pregnant women and mothers. And there he's talking about fleeing. At the end of time, when Jesus does return, 1 Corinthians 15, I mean, it's going to be immediate. Everything changes. It's all over. No one's going to go back into a house or any other place. It's over. It's resurrection time. And so even in Matthew 24, in spite of the apocalyptic type language used, the very descriptions that he gives about not going back into your house and fleeing and getting out of the city and all of that, it's ob obviously referring in its details uh, to the destruction of Jerusalem and the need to get out when this time was coming. It is an historical fact that when Rome surrounded Jerusalem in AD 70, there was at one point a pause in the battle and the Christians did heed the warnings of Matthew 24 and the parallels and they were able to escape the city. They went down to the little city of Pella. So uh, it is pretty clear here in Luke's account that we're simply talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, a coming in judgment, the destruction of the city, the destruction of the temple, which ended their age, ended the Jewish age, ended the first covenant made with the Jews and ushered in at the day of Pentecost when the church was established, ushered in the uh, new covenant. Now, most writers, including some of my teacher friends, uh, try to divide Matthew 24 and the parallels into two parts. They do admit that the first part is about the destruction of Jerusalem, but they say the last part is about the end of the world. And when you actually continue reading, I didn't continue reading, but the next verse after what we've read saying that the generation wouldn't pass until these things happen Jesus said, but of that day and hour knows no man, uh, not the angels, not me. Uh, no one knows uh, when that is going to occur. And so most people say that when Jesus says that no one knows when it's coming, he has to be talking about the end of the world. Well, not at all. I don't think he is at all. He's just saying the specific time no one knows, including me, while I'm on the earth, in the flesh, as a man. And so the angels, no one knew except the Father. I'm sure after Jesus got back to heaven uh, and ascended, he certainly then would know. But he's saying of that day and hour, that is the specific time, no one knows. But here are the signs that you could recognize when it is near. That's what they asked for. That's what Jesus gave them. And he explained to them that no one knows the specific time except the Father right now. But watch for the signs so that you can get out of the city uh, when this destruction comes, which is the destruction of Jerusalem, AD 70, the end of the Jewish age. I will mention that Luke 17 takes language from all parts of Luke 21 and mixes it all up in a way that either it is all about the end of the Jewish age and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, it's either all about that, 
or uh, it is a hodgepodge that can't be understood, frankly. I mean, you can't take all of that chapter and apply it to the end of the world. You could say it's either about the end of the Jewish age or the end of the world, but I don't think you can say it's the end of the world. And Luke 17 adds something to that because he takes all the signs and mixes them up. And I think it's either got to be the end of the Jewish age, as we've said, or some kind of, kind of hodgepodge that you can't understand. And I don't think God does that sort of thing for sure. I do suggest an article on my website, gordonferguson.org, that is entitled Matthew 24, End of the World or End of the Age. And so I go through all of this in some detail, but the reason I've taken the time to do it here is because it gives you an idea of the symbolic language that while it was not used much in the New Testament outside the book of Revelation, it certainly was used in Matthew 24, uh, Luke 21, Luke uh, 17, and Mark 13. But I think you must have some grasp of symbolic language, this type of language that was common in the Old Testament and especially then during the uh, intertestamental period because it was a type of language used for a purpose during the persecution time, encouraging uh, God's people that it was going to be okay eventually. The enemy is going to be destroyed and defeated and my way and my cause is going to triumph. Now, let's get into Revelation. Let's talk about interpreting Revelation. I will mention, I think as I have already in podcast one, that while many of the symbols, most of them, come from the Old Testament, they are applied, uh, applied in different circumstances now to different political situations. We're not talking about Babylon. We're not talking about Egypt. We're not talking about any world power in those days. We're talking about Rome because that is the nation that was in power when the church was established, the new covenant was established. And so now we're going to be addressing what is happening in Rome. When we come to Revelation, we're going to find a lot of numbers in the book. Uh, one is the number of unity, and all of this quite well known to the Jews. Two was the number of strengthening, carried that idea. And so the apostles were sent out two by two, because that was the strengthening for the work they were doing. Three is the divine number, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Four is the world or cosmic number. And so in Revelation, it will talk about the four winds of heaven and the four corners of the earth. We obviously don't uh, have four corners of the earth. We know that, but it's described in that way in Revelation because four is the cosmic number. Seven, on the other hand, as you add the divine number and world number together, you get seven, and that certainly is the number of perfection when you add those two together. And so when it talks about the seven spirits before the throne of God, he's not talking about seven individual spirits. He's talking about the Holy Spirit in his perfection. Seven is the number of perfection. That being so, the number six is a number that was evil and sinister 
It was short of the perfect seven. Uh, honestly, it was a lot like our 13 today. There are hotels without a 13th floor as far as what the elevator says. Uh, obviously, there are 13 floors, but they don't call it that. They skip 13. Uh, that was very popular at one time. I'm not sure if it is today, but uh, I haven't looked lately. But I know when I was younger, there were definitely buildings that I was in that had a 12th floor and 13th floor on the elevator indicator, but not a 13th because that was a bad number. So six, when we come to the uh, number of the beast, 666, it's going to tie into that uh, short of perfection number. And we'll talk about that more when we get there. 10 was the number of completeness. If you have all your fingers, all your toes, 10 was the number of completeness, and we'll see that. And so when you multiply that one out and come up with a thousand, that is ultimate completeness. So I think in uh, Revelation 20, when we talk about a thousand year reign of Christ, uh, we're not talking about a literal thousand years any more than most other numbers in Revelation are not meant to be literal, but rather they are symbolic. This is a book of symbols. Twelve in Revelation, which is definitely used, the twelve tribes of Israel is used twice. That is just the number for organized religion. You had twelve tribes of Israel, you have twelve apostles, and so twelve was the number that signified religion. Then when you take the perfect seven and cut it in half, three and a half, uh, that is going to stand in Revelation for a period of instability and persecution. It's going to be stated in several ways. Uh, 42 months, 1260 days, uh, and then using Daniel's terminology, a time, times, and half of a time. And so that's another way of saying three and a half. And 42 months is, is three and a half years. 1260 days is three and a half years. And so that is just a period of persecution and instability that will end. Colors have a distinct meaning. Uh, we're going to find some horses that are colored a certain way when the uh, symbolism begins and the colors stand for something. And so typically white was always victory or purity. Uh, red is going to stand for bloodshed, and so uh, we'll pick up on the colors when we get there, but colors have symbolic meaning just like numbers do. Beasts represent an enemy nation or an aspect of that nation, and so we're going to read about certain beasts that stand for Rome or an aspect of Rome. Horns, as in the Old Testament commonly, stand for power or for kings, their political authority being represented. Heavenly bodies being affected, the stars falling, the moon turning to blood, all of those things uh, show the upheavals of nations and human powers as God brings judgment against them. Just like in Isaiah that we started with in uh, podcast number one. Different symbols may be used to show the same basic thing. It's just at a different stage of God's judgment, but it stands for basically the same thing, a type of judgment. 
And so earlier in Revelation, we get trumpets and destruction that comes as the trumpets are sounding. And then later on in Revelation, we get bowls of wrath being poured out. And what we're going to find is the trumpets were more of a warning affecting uh, part of what it's describing. The bowls of wrath was sort of the uh, finality of it, the finality of the judgment against Rome. Now, their current population, uh, popular rather interpretations that I want to mention. In the old days, in fact, in my book, Revelation Revealed, I talk about some uh, views of interpretation that had certain names uh, attached to them, but now it has become more simplified. Rather than using several, several different uh, sort of technical terms to describe uh, interpretations of Revelation that had been used and accepted by some historically, now almost all views fit into what is either called premillennialism or amillennialism. Amillennialism means that there will be no literal 1,000 reign of Christ on earth at the end of time. The thousand-year reign is mentioned in Revelation 20. We'll deal with it when we get to that point, but I don't think the thousand years is literal, and the reign of Christ is described in Revelation 20, uh, but it is not talking about him on the earth personally. It is talking about something that took place on earth as the persecution was severely limited for a long period of time, which is what the thousand years stood for. We'll get to that. Premillennialism means that there will be a reign of Christ on the earth. And so uh, Jesus will reign on the earth for a thousand years, according to this. Uh, Fifty years ago, premillennialism was not widely accepted. When I first began my ministry and really digging into Revelation and soon thereafter, teaching it. I taught Revelation in a uh, school for a number of years. It became one of my specialty courses. Re uh, Romans did that as well. I've written books on both of these now, expositions. But I taught those two courses over and over. I taught many other courses, Christian Evidences and Restoration History and almost every other book in the Bible. I taught them at some time or other uh, in my years at the school, but I taught Revelation and Romans over and over. When I taught Revelation, I would read a new commentary every time I taught it, and I would read commentaries that I totally disagreed with, uh, some of them uh, taking the premillennial view. It wasn't a popular view back then, but it was in the process of becoming popular 50 years ago. Now, it is the most popular view within evangelical circles. Names like uh, John Nelson Darby, who really started this premillennial view. Uh, he was a person who lived in the 1800s. He died near the end of the 1800s, 1882. The one that picked up on what he taught and made it popular was C.I. Schofield. He died in 1921, so he lived in the 1800s, uh, did a lot of his work in the early 1900s, and died in 1921. He put out a very popular 
Schofield Reference Bible. I was given that at my 15th birthday. I remember it had a nice red uh, cover on it, and it had a bunch of footnotes. It was a study Bible. It had a lot of footnotes that were pretty scary things for me as a boy at 15 years old, especially because we had a very good minister friend that came in and spoke to our little church, and he was as premillennial as you could get with uh, all kinds of extras thrown in. Uh, he was scary for me to hear because that was his pet thing. He taught about it every time he came, virtually. Uh, then, about the time I became my, uh, started studying for ministry, Hal Lindsey was the one that really popularized the premillennial view. Uh, he's still alive, by the way, at age 92. He's lived a very interesting life. He continues to spout out all kinds of things that he thinks are uh, prophesied in the Bible, and he's been wrong so many times. You could write an entire book about all the things that he wrote in his books, like Late Great Planet Earth. That was very popular. But uh, he nonetheless, in spite of all the prophecies he gave that never came true, that were actually ridiculous, in spite of that, he uh, was, I think, the most influential person in developing this premillennial view. Now, many writers expound this view. It's the most popular view in the evangelical world. There are a lot of people that are amillennial, that is, they don't believe that there will be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. There are a lot of people in the evangelical circles that are amillennial. Certainly, I am amillennial, and I'll explain why. But uh, you're perhaps familiar with the series of books by a pretty well-known Christian writer. I mean, he writes about a number of things, but he wrote a series called Left Behind. And then a film series was developed based on those books. So even people like Tim LaHaye, or who are recognized spiritual writers in general, have gotten into that genre of interpretation and written books, and uh, they've developed films from them about the premillennial view. Here are the elements of the popular, most normal premillennial view. I think it is so wrong, but nonetheless, this is it. Number one, Christ will return to the earth and rule for a thousand years in Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Uh, seven years before Christ's return, the righteous will experience a rapture, which means a catching up based on the Latin uh, term uh, raptio. And 1 Thessalonians 4.17 mentions a rapture in the Latin version, a catching up. We'll talk about that one. But anyway, uh, it talks about a rapture or a catching up of the earth, those who are righteous. The saved folks get raptured up, and then those left on the earth will experience the great tribulation in the last part of the seven-year period. So the righteous are caught up to heaven to be with Jesus for seven years, then they come back with him to the earth, and he establishes his kingdom on the earth for a literal thousand years. During the latter part of that seven-year period, after the righteous have been taken to heaven or raptured up, a personal antichrist, one individual, will arise 
to bring on the great tribulation. At the end of the seven-year period, Jesus returns, sets up his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. And so the early writers, like Lindsay, and ones that were a lot more scholarly than him, he went to Dallas Theological Seminary. I used to go and use their library for research a lot. But uh, anyway, they say that Jesus came to establish the kingdom when he came. Uh, when he was born in Bethlehem, he came to establish the kingdom, but the Jews rejected it and him. He was blocked by the Jews. And so the church is uh, no more than a parenthetical aspect of the kingdom, but it's not the real thing. Uh, they claim that it can't possibly fit all of the Old Testament prophecies. And so that is the uh, basic idea that they have. They used to say, Schofield says in his notes under Acts chapter 2, that he says that the kingdom was uh, blocked or rejected by the Jews and Jesus established the church as a sort of interim substitute until the millennium actually came. Now, as popular as the premillennial view is, I think it is so full of assumptions, it's incredible. Scriptures are twisted as much as they can be twisted. And a lot of people doing it are actually otherwise very good scholars. It's, it's amazing to me uh, that this could happen. Let me just look at one thing about this premillennial view, and that is the rapture, the left behind concept. Let me read a couple verses or a few verses in 1 Thessalonians and explain something to you. It says, brothers and sisters, picking up in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be informed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who were left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a voice or with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up, raptured together with them, taken with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, here's the context. The Christians were having their loved ones die, and they had questions about, will they miss their reward because they won't be alive when Jesus comes? And so when Christ returns, Paul assured them that we're all going to go up together, save Christians and uh, all, all uh, saved people, dead Christians and living Christians alike. The dead Christians will rise from the grave first, together with the living Christians be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and be with him forever. What happens to non-Christians, dead or alive, is not addressed within this context at all. The only two classes of people mentioned are dead Christians and living Christians when Christ comes. So, since non-Christians are not addressed at all, if you want to know what happens to them, you've got to look at passages that deal with that. 
You can't go to a passage that doesn't even mention non-Christians and concoct a whole theory, the rapture theory, that people hold today, many of them. You can't go to a passage that doesn't even mention non-Christians and try to concoct a view that includes them. Now, if you want to go to a passage that deals with both, it's very simple, not hard to understand. John 5, verses 20 and 29 says this, Do not be amazed at this, for the time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. And so when Jesus comes back, he raises everyone. It is the judgment day, saved and lost alike. It says all that are in the tombs will be raised at the same time. There is no seven-year gap between two resurrections. And so uh, when you look at uh, a passage that actually deals with the dead non-Christians, then you can come up with something that is actually true. Now, there's no seven-year gap between the resurrections. There are no two resurrections. There are spiritual resurrections uh, of several types. One type is a spiritual resurrection that actually will be described in Revelation 20. And when we get there, we will talk about that. So my question is, in all seriousness, I'm not trying to mock anyone. I'm just uh, flabbergasted that people have come up with the views that they have. So my question is, how in the world can you build a doctrine with two separate resurrections from 1 Thessalonians 4 when non-Christians are not even mentioned? I think the answer to both questions is the fertile imagination of wannabe teachers who twist some scriptures and invent other things that are absolutely make-believe stories, but they appeal to our human desire to know what cannot be known and was never intended to be known, and that is everything that's going to be done at the second coming of Christ. What I know is he is coming back. It will be unexpected. Everyone is raised at once. We are caught up and uh, before the judgment seat of God, and then those that are lost will be cast into hell, and those that are saved will be ushered in to be with the Lord forever. And so next podcast, we will get to Revelation, give some background of what was going on in the Roman Empire at the time, but at least I felt like it's worth two podcasts just to deal with apocalyptic language, the symbolic type language with which Revelation was written. And so hopefully that is helpful. You can read uh, more articles if you like on my website, gordonferguson.org. You can buy the book, uh, Revelation Revealed. I've had so many people, I've taught this a lot through the years in our churches, many, many years, but I've had so many people tell me and write me and thank me for writing Revelation Reveal, because they said, I used to be so afraid of that book, I wouldn't even read Revelation. And now that I've gone through your book, 
uh, it makes perfect sense. I understand it and it accomplishes for me exactly what God intended it to accomplish. It really encourages me. It excites me. It's full of all kinds of action and things, and it's a fun thing to read. Uh, I wish I could see it as a movie, honestly, that was made correctly, interpreted correctly, but it is a very exciting book. And next podcast, we are going to jump into Revelation get a little historical background of it, and then do a survey of Revelation, not in great detail, but I think you'll agree when we end that Revelation is not nearly so mysterious and complex as many would make it. It can be understood. It was intended to be understood. And in one of the Beatitudes in Revelation, there are seven, by the way, not unexpectedly, but he says, blessed are those seven times, and one of those blessings was pronounced on those who would uh, read and understand the book of Revelation. Learning the book of Revelation is said to be one of those blessings from God. And so next time, with the Holy Spirit's help, we will do that. Thank you very much for tuning in. I look forward to podcast three next week. God bless you. Thank you, Gordon, and thanks for listening to Deeper Dive by the OC Church of Christ. To conclude our Revelation Revealed series, we will have a Q&A with Gordon about the book of Revelation. If you would like to submit your question, please email us at occhurchofchrist at gmail.com or message us on social media. If you want to get connected to us or want to donate to the program, go to our website, occhurchofchrist.com or through social media at the OC Church. Join us next time for our next Deeper Dive.